0: Wow, what a wonderful day. We have covered a lot in the passage that Joe just read, but don't fear. I only want to leave you with four very important takeaways from that passage so that we're not here all morning. We could be. There's a lot there. I would guess that many of you have had those experiences where you've experienced kind of a going-away meal with a group of people. Maybe uh, I know I've had that experience in other countries where I've gone and maybe taught. And the last night, they just want to say thank you. And there's this celebratory meal. Celebratory. I can't even say celebration meal. Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's a great time. It's a, a great time to extend blessings. Uh, we've had that, uh, you've had that maybe with a family member that's come and that's their last night. And you have this meal just to remember and to remember the time you've been together. At those final meals that we've had in different circumstances, people want to express their appreciation. Sometimes if you're relocating to somewhere else, they want to express a, a blessing and how you've blessed them. Because it's a small chapter of our lives that is Coming to a close and a new chapter opening in Luke 22, we have one of those meals. It's a final meal. Jesus tells them, this is the last meal that I'm going to eat with you, the last Passover meal that I'm going to eat with you. I am never going to partake of this meal again until my kingdom comes to fulfillment. So it becomes a time that's very teachable. It becomes a time... That's memorable. God's word is replete with word pictures. We've just witnessed a word picture through baptism. And Frank and Maria and the kids came and they said... I want all of you to know that I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I want all of you to know that I have died to self and risen to new life, and I want all of you to know that I am going to follow him. And that was done through a living word picture. We have another word picture that's in this passage that we're going to participate in in a few minutes, and it's the, the word picture of communion. And we believe that those two word pictures, the word picture of baptism and the word picture of communion, fall under the category of what's called theologically an ordinance. An ordinance, when we talk about the church, is something that's perpetual, something that continues. The ordinance of baptism is to be something that is to continue. It's not something that we just decide, well, we're not going to baptize anybody anymore. Because we haven't been told to stop doing that yet. And the same with communion. There will come a day in eternity when we won't celebrate communion the same way. Because we'll be in the presence of the Lord. We're told by the Apostle Paul that we're to do this until he returns. Word pictures. Word pictures in scripture are tangible. You can touch them. You can feel them. That water, it was warm, but wet. Uh, it's it's you can feel it. You can't go into the water of baptism and not come out changed. You're soaking wet. You're a different. You're there's a difference. The bread and the cup are tangible. It's real bread. It's it's real juice or real wine. It's tangible, and and so God gives us these tangible things as reminders. Luke 22, we find Jesus instructing his disciples to prepare for the Passover. The Passover meal was eventually called a Seder. It meant order. And it was to be a lasting ordinance for God's people, the Jews, because it was to be a constant annual reminder, an annual time to rehearse what God had done, how God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And it's to remember what happened as recorded in Exodus chapter 12, when the angel of death passed over the camp of Israel, where they were living in the land of Goshen, and, and he passed over all of the houses that had the blood of that first, that year old lamb that had the blood on the doorposts and on the lentil. And every year, they were to come back, and they were to rehearse that. And that's the meal that's taking place in Luke 22. It was the meal that each of the disciples had partaken of their entire lives. It was the meal that Jesus had partaken of for his entire life. It was the Passover It was a meal in which Jesus not only led the meal, because he was the leader of the group, so he led the meal. In a normal household, the father would lead the meal and would lead the Passover meal, but it was also a meal that he used to teach and to prepare his disciples for what was coming ahead. I believe they were finally beginning to understand what was happening as that meal came to a close. Now, we started out in Luke 22 7, as Joe read that for us, telling us that Jesus sent Peter and John in to make preparations. And he gave them some specifics, right? He said, uh, they, they said, Well, what do we do? Who do we said, look for a guy? He's going to be carrying water, follow him. And he's going to go to a house. You're going to, you're to reach out to the owner of that house, tell him, We're here. We're here to prepare for the Passover. The Master sent us. And he's going to show you to an upper room. But I think the key verse and the first lesson, the first takeaway for me, and I think it was eventually a takeaway for Peter and John later on, is verse 13. Verse 13 says, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. That's one that we kind of gloss over. Oh, isn't that neat? It was just like, but camp on that for a minute. They found things just as Jesus told them. They walked into the city and like, oh, there's a guy carrying water. Let's follow him. And he goes into a house. They knock on the door say, hey, we're here. Oh, yeah, come on upstairs. They found things just as Jesus told them. Here's the takeaway. Very simple. Very basic. Very profound. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted trusted. When Jesus says something, it is so. When Jesus tells us something, it is right. I think that is a very simple lesson for you and me today. Jesus can be trusted. Now, we, we don't have in Luke all the preparations that took place. According to Dr. Daniel Wallace, when they got there, the table had been set and prepared. The table was a, a low table, no more than about 18 inches off the ground. Uh, there were 13 places set, 12 for the, the, the closest followers of Jesus and one for Jesus. In front of each place was four glasses of wine. Uh, and uh, there were either fluffy pillows or small couches Because they would lean on them and they would recline to eat. Not this kind of recline, but on an elbow. And they would all lean in toward the table. Uh, What scholars can glean from the first century is this particular meal was a lot simpler than some of us who've done a Seder supper before. It wouldn't have included the boiled egg or the lamb's shank bone because those were introduced after 70 A.D. or C.E., however you want to say that. And there wouldn't be a fifth cup of wine that was introduced later. There was a key passage from the book of Exodus that provided the outline for the supper it was exodus chapter 6 verses 6 and 7 therefore say to the israelites i am the lord and i will bring you out from under the yoke of the egyptians i will free you from being slaves to them and i will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment i will take you as my own people and i will be your god then you will know that i am The Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. There are four I will statements in there that provide the outline for the meal. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgments. I will take you as my people. That's the backdrop that Jesus used to institute the lasting ordinance of communion. He tells them he'd been longing to share this meal with his disciples because he knew, he knew it would be the last time he would share this meal with them. So it was a time to look back and remember and a time to look forward and anticipate. Luke along with the other gospel writers, does not give us all the details of the meal. But we're pretty certain that it was during the course that followed the third I will statement that we find verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, and when he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. In the course of the meal, the host would take the last of the unleavened bread and he would distribute it to them and he would pray blessed are you lord blessed are you o lord our god king of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth blessed are you o lord our god king of the universe who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to eat unleavened bread and i believe to this jesus added this is my body which is given for you do this In remembrance of me, let us partake of the bread in remembrance of Jesus. Now, that particular um, moment would be followed, and everybody at the table would recite these words The name of the Lord be blessed from now until eternity. Let us bless him whose gifts we have partaken. Blessed be our God of whose gifts we have partaken and by whose goodness we exist. At that point in the meal, the host would then make sure that everybody's third cup was filled with wine. And, And the host would typically hold up the third cup. And he would say, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So it was that moment, taking the cup of redemption, being reminded of God's promise to redeem his people, being reminded that God had fulfilled that promise centuries before in Egypt and had redeemed his people, and Jesus reminding them that there's a greater redemption coming that Jesus then added, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And the Apostle Paul would add, do this in remembrance of me. And that's our second takeaway today. Always remember the death of Jesus for the sins of the world. Always remember the death of Jesus for the sins of the world. Now it's interesting. According to Luke's gospel, Judas is still there. According to Luke's gospel, Judas has participated to this point. And Jesus calls him out, not necessarily by name, but he calls him out that someone is going to betray me. We read that earlier, that uh, he said, "Someone is, uh, verse uh, 21, the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves who was going to do this. They couldn't imagine anybody betraying Jesus. John's gospel tells us that he sends Luke out, and, or he sends Judas out, and most likely everybody thought Judas was going out to take care of something because Judas also happened to be in charge of the, the treasury of the group, the money. But notice how that argument or that that debate there quickly dissolves. It dissolves into an argument, a dispute, as to which of them would be considered the greatest. Now, when you hear that, you have to understand in context what they're disputing. They're not disputing, I'm better than you. The dispute is, in my mind, they are becoming keenly aware because he's told them three times earlier, as Luke records it, that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to be crucified. He's told them that. John's gospel, they're they're struggling with where are you going because we don't know where you're going. And, And the dispute was, let me put it this way, who sits at the head of the table next year? Jesus is at the head of the table. He says, I'm not going to eat this meal with you again. Who gets to take over? Who gets your room when you go to college? Who gets the the privileged place? Who is going to take over the leadership? Who's the greatest? Who's the one that really deserves the leadership of this group? I believe and other scholars kind of believe that it's possible that at that moment we have what's recorded in John 13. As they're disputing who is the best, who's the leader, who's taking over, the king of the universe gets up puts a towel around his, takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around him, and goes and gets a bowl of water and begins to wash their feet. Can you imagine that moment? If that happened in that way, can you imagine the power of that moment? That's going to end that dispute pretty quickly. Jesus washing their feet as they're disputing who gets to take his place. And it fits with what comes here in Luke. Because they're disputing that and then maybe after he sat down and maybe after John's words, do you know what I've just done for you? When you go and do the same to one another, Jesus says this, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I among you am among you as one who serves. Third takeaway for today. In that moment, in that moment of his eating of his last Passover with them, in that moment of his instituting what we call communion. In that moment of teaching them that servanthood is the thing that God holds up, we need to learn that Jesus is our best example of servant leadership. Leadership is not lordship in the sense that I'm your boss, you do what I say. We've all worked for bosses like that. In fact, of the shows that we EVR at times is uh blue bloods and uh in one of those episodes and I, I may have shared this before there was an episode when there was a debate between uh the the daughter who's a, an assistant district attorney and her new boss who's come to take over and she had put in for that position and wasn't taking it and they were debating back and forth about policy and it was interesting at one point the uh Aaron Reagan, the district attorney, says to her boss, You need to remember, I don't work for you, I work with you. And it was interesting, my wife reflected on a, on, a, on a boss that she had had many years ago, and she goes, That's what made that particular person great. We worked with each other. Yes, she was my boss, she was my authority, but I always felt I worked with her. That's servant leadership. When, when, when you're a servant leader, The people around you aren't people who work for you, they work with you. Now I get it. I understand delegation. I think delegation is important in any organization, but I believe the leader who's known to serve is the leader who can most effectively delegate. The leader who can bring others up with them, who can make others better, who pulls the team together. That's servant leadership. A servant leader won't do, won't assign something to somebody that they wouldn't do themselves if they had to. That's servant leadership. Jesus exuded servant leadership. He washed dirty, grimy, sweaty feet. He reminded them our type of leadership, the type of leadership in the kingdom of heaven, is not the type of leadership that says, I'm the boss, do what I say, do it now. It's the type of leadership that says, I'm working with you. I have the position of authority, but we're all a team. We all work well together. I think it was Peter Drucker who once said, the greatest leaders in companies are the ones that when the project fails, they say, I take the blame. I should have foreseen the obstacles. I didn't lead properly. But when the project succeeds, they say, we have a great team that all worked together and this team made it happen. Finally, for our purpose this morning, in this passage that we could spend a lot of time in, I want to look at Jesus turning to Peter. Jesus stops. He talks about the disciples. You've stood by me in my trials. I'm going to give you kingdom just as my father gave to me. One day you're going to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. One day you're going to judge in Israel. One day you're going to have that authority, but for now be servants. And then he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Simon replied, but Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Don't miss that. Satan hasn't demanded, Satan has asked. Satan hasn't threatened, he's asked. We have to remember Satan is always under the ultimate authority of God. Now, sometimes God does allow him as we see in the book of Job's to Job to take us through difficult times, sometimes excruciatingly painful times, times we don't understand. But we must not confuse our own foolish decisions with the work of Satan. We need to be careful that we don't blame Satan for foolish decisions that we make from which we live the consequences. And yet there's something else here because we know the story. We know what happened because if you can trust Jesus then you know that Simon went out and he was there warming himself by the fire. And three times he, he vehemently denied that he knew Jesus. And we're going to see that and kind of dissect it in a few weeks Because Luke tells us a detail that nobody else tells. He says, at the moment that the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at Simon. They made eye contact. I believe the look on Jesus' face was not a look of anger. I think it was a look of deep compassion. Because he understood what Simon was going through and the pain and the heartache. Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. And all of you will fail. Only John stayed by the cross. All the disciples turned and ran. I look at that passage, and I look at Simon, and I look at his failure, and I discover this. God works through broken and wounded people like you and me. We are all broken and wounded. Some of us today can really relate to the word picture of being sifted like wheat. It feels like you've been through a sieve. We've all failed. There isn't a one of us here can look back at our lives and go, no failures here. We've all failed. We've all blown it in many ways. I remember something I read In a book I was reading by Max Lucado, and it was just a simple phrase. Because of the cross, failure is not fatal. Would you remember that? We're all broken. We're all wounded. God works through broken, wounded people just like us. And Jesus said in the moment, he said, but Simon... And all of you disciples, and you and me here, I have prayed for you. Not that it would go away. I've prayed for you. Not that it'll all be better. I've prayed that your faith will not fail. Would you be reminded today that Jesus is praying for you? In fact, Romans 8.26 tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And in Romans 8.34, Paul says Jesus intercedes for us. The God is praying for you by name right now. Jesus is praying for you. And whatever you face, God is fully aware of the struggle. God is fully aware of the challenge. God is fully aware of the strength you need. And God wants you to know, I believe, that he will work in you and through you because God works through wounded, broken people just like you and me. You see, the reason Jesus, I believe, prays that your faith may not fail because he knows that's the linchpin. When the enemy can get us to a point in which we've decided that Jesus can't be trusted, when the enemy can get us to a point that we, can, that we decide God is not able When the enemy gets us to the point where we decide I can't be forgiven, when the enemy gets us to the point where we decide I am worthless, I'm useless in God's kingdom, he's won that battle. He hasn't won the war. He lost the war at Calvary 2,000 years ago, but he'll win that battle. None of us are guaranteed pain-free existences. But we are guaranteed the constant presence of a God who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that guarantee is based on our faith. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I'm going to leave it there for today. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at some of the final statements in the upper room. We'll look at the elements of Jesus' arrest and trial. But today, just remember these four simple takeaways Jesus can be trusted. Always remember the, G- the death of Jesus for the sins of the world. Jesus is our best example of servant leadership. God works through broken and wounded people like you and me. Baptism, a word picture, a living word picture of a commitment. The bread and the cup, a word picture, a constant word picture of Jesus dying on the cross to redeem us from the curse of sin. Jesus' call is to each of us daily. Follow me. Trust me. Believe in me. Let me use you. Receive my forgiveness. Follow me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the word pictures this morning that we have seen in baptism and communion. Thank you for your love for each one of us. Dear God, may we renew our commitment this morning to follow you in Jesus' name.